Good morning. How are we doing? Great. Good for you. You get extra points for coming to church this weekend on a holiday weekend. Um, I don't think that's actually, I know that's not how it works. Um, but I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that we get to be here together. Um, last week, Jeff finished a series, The Seven Sayings of the Cross, where we looked at the, the seven things that Jesus said as he was on the cross. And in a couple of weeks, he's going to be starting a new series in which we will be looking at some of the lesser known kings of Israel, which I think is going to be awesome. I'm super excited for, um, but I'm going to be preaching for the next couple of weeks. And a lot of times when I preach, even though it's pretty uh, regularly, it just so happens to be on weeks like this where we are in between services or for some reason in the calendar, it makes sense for us to take a pause. And, um, and Jeff gives me freedom in those moments to preach about whatever I want, which is awesome, except I get analysis by paralysis. And I have such a hard time trying to figure out in all of scripture, which verses am I supposed to talk about that are completely disconnected from anything that has happened the week before or after. So, for my own sanity, I decided that I'd like give myself a little theme when I get to find myself up here in between service or in between series or uh, at a pause in a series. And I thought that it would be really fun for us to walk through the images that are on the stained glass windows of our sanctuary. Uh, now, if, if your connection to us here at City Church is as a listener of our podcast, you, you can't or haven't ever physically uh, worshiped with us, or if you are simply as observant as I am sometimes, um, I understand that you may not be able to readily picture our stained glass windows in your mind. And um, as I look out, I think some of you may have just realized that we have stained glass windows in our sanctuary. And if that's you, no judgment. It is all good. No matter uh, your ability to see our windows as we discuss them, that's not essential to this series. Um, though I do think, listen for it, uh, you may come to see these windows in a new light by the end of it. <laughs> that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Uh, no, we have, we have six of these stained glass windows. They are three feet wide by 24 feet tall, which does not fit on any screen that you or I would ever use. Um, and largely... These windows, they do exactly what stained glass has been intended to do for over a millennium. See, while humans have known for thousands of years that basically ever since we've had glass, we've known that if you add different things to the, the glass as you're making it or if you paint them, you can get light to look different as it comes through, but it didn't really become an art form in windows until the Middle Ages when the church discovered that it could be an amazing tool. See, the purpose of stained glass was twofold. First, in a world in which the vast majority of the population was illiterate, it was a device that could be used to tell the stories of the Bible in pictures. In fact, if you look closely at our stained glass, and what we're going to walk through is that starting up here at the front of the room and going back, the panes tell the story of the New Testament and starts all the way at the beginning of the Gospels through Revelation. And in a world when people could not read, this was a way to tell the story of God. And the second, it wasn't just a storytelling device, but it was an innovation of the church for creating unique environments for worship. See, in a world without electricity, natural light is the main source of illumination for any building, that or candles. And stained glass windows took what would have just been ordinary windows and transformed any sanctuary that featured them into a room with colored light that you could not experience anywhere else in your life. 
In reality, on, on our stage, we have lights that can change to almost any color in the spectrum. And while LEDs are a much newer technology in houses of worship, they're really just a continuation of our heritage as people that seek to create unique environments in which people can connect with our God, the Creator. So, over the next six or so times that I'm going to be preaching, we will be walking through these windows and the stories they tell. And for today, I love this, this is what we're starting with, because the idea that something on which its surface could not be more ordinary, like a simple piece of glass, would in fact be transformed into something so much more and would be used to tell the story of God in an incredibly beautiful way is a perfect parallel for the story that is told by our first window. For those of you who can't see either the, the window itself or um, we've got an image on our screen, the first window that we see is the story of Mary, or the mother of Jesus. And she's being visited by the, the messenger Gabriel, and both Matthew and Luke, in their Gospels, they tell of the angel Gabriel visiting Mary, but we're going to look at Luke specifically in the first chapter of his Gospel. And so if you want to go there in your Bible to follow along, that would be great. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the back of the pew in front of you, and uh, we'll have the words up on the screen uh, for you to follow along. But I'd always encourage you to, to read along in your Bible so you can take notes or even just to see for yourself that these are the words of God and not just take my word for it. What we're going to see as we look at these verses is that through the coming of Jesus, God was doing something completely radical and revolutionary, and he was using ordinary, insignificant people to play a dramatic role in his plan. And the first way that we see this is that God was doing something radical and revolutionary in Mary herself. Before we dive in, I just want to give a quick disclaimer in talking about Mary. Depending on your background, um, there are maybe a couple of traps that you need to be careful of. If, if you grew up um, in a Catholic background, there is a trap that Mary can become a, an almost godlike figure that we have venerated and pray to and ask her to intervene in ways that are reserved for the sovereignty of God. And so we have to be really careful to not place Mary too high in our minds and give her supernatural powers. But there's another trap that a lot of us can fall into, which is on the complete other side of that spectrum. And that is that we're so afraid that we might be Catholic that we ignore or dismiss Mary and don't give her her due. What I hope that we can do today is what I think Luke does, and that is give Mary the exact place and honor that she deserves as an unbelievably important supporting character in the story of Jesus. That story in Luke 1, it will tell of two miraculous pregnancies. Right? The first is Mary's cousin, Elizabeth. She's visited by Gabriel, and she's told that she would bear a son whose name would be John. This is John the Baptist. And Elizabeth is far too old to have a child, and so this is, this is miraculous on a number of fronts, but she is, is overjoyed. And then Mary is also visited by Gabriel, and she is told that she's going to bear a son. Now, Mary is not too old to have a son. Mary is medically impossible to have a son because she's a virgin. And yet, despite the fact that she's a virgin, she has been chosen by God to be the mother of the long-awaited Messiah, the king from the house of David whose reign will never end, whose kingdom will endure forever. 
This is the message Mary is given. And so, yes, God is doing something radical and revolutionary in Mary, literally, but that's not what I really meant by that point. Mary tells us herself what God is doing in her that is radical and revolutionary. See, after she gets the news, she goes to visit her cousin, Elizabeth. When she gets to the house, John, in Elizabeth's womb, jumps. And Elizabeth recognizes Mary and, and says, calls her the mother of her Lord, recognizes that what is going on inside of Mary is not an ordinary child. This is an amazing gift. And Mary responds, starting in verse 46 of Luke chapter 1, with some of the most beautiful words, I think, in all of Scripture. She says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. All right now, we read this story, and, and honestly, just something that comes to mind is, is the song, jokingly, Mary, Did You Know? Right? The, this, which poses the idea that, that Mary could have you know, never known the specifics, things that Jesus would do. Right? She did not know that her son would one day walk on water, but... I do think Luke wants us to see in Mary's words here and following that she did know a lot more about how God works and who she was than many of us would ever give her credit for. See, a couple of things that I think are really important to note in Mary's words. Mary states that she glorifies the Lord, that her spirit rejoices in God, that generations will call her blessed because God, the mighty one, has done great things for her. But if I'm being completely honest, I don't know that I would have had the same disposition as Mary if I were her. You see, in Mary's world, this pregnancy, it would not have made her life easier or by almost any practical me measure made her life any better. See, the idea that Mary's pregnancy was the result of supernatural activity, that would have sounded as crazy or maybe more to her neighbors than it would to us today, right? We've come a long way medically, but we have known for a very, very long time where babies come from. And so it would have been a shock, maybe more so to an ancient world that had not heard for thousands of years about a miraculous birth to a virgin. In her community, this pregnancy, it would have been a source of shame. It would have made her incredibly vulnerable to the, the will and decision of her fiancé, Joseph. There would have been individuals in her community that really thought the best thing that could possibly happen in regards to Mary in this pregnancy would be that she'd be dragged into the public square and stoned to death. And yet... What Mary says in verse 46 is that she is blessed, that generations will call her blessed, that God has been so good to her, that he has seen her for who she is, that, that he has done wonderful things for her. You see, Mary is somehow able to look beyond all of the circumstances surrounding her pregnancy and is able to see that God is doing something far bigger than her through this baby. And what exactly would Mary have considered to be far bigger than her? Anything. 
Mary would have considered anything that God would want to do to be bigger than her. Definitely would have been more important. In verse 48, Mary says, God has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And what she is very politely and beautifully saying is that she does not see herself as anyone significant. And it's not just Mary, it's her world that would not see her as anything significant. And Luke knows this and he wants the readers of his gospel to get this. See, Mary is at the very bottom of the social ladder. She is a woman. She is unwed, pregnant, vulnerable to shame and accusations. She's poor, a religious minority in the Roman Empire, and she's from a town that no one cares about, pledged to be married to a poor man. If you were to make Mary's resume, there is nothing in it that would say this is a significant person for which the whole world should be looking out. There are a million reasons for Mary to not love the circumstances in which she finds herself or to believe that she has any business being someone important and yet she is able to see the radical revolutionary plan of God at work. She counts herself blessed to have been chosen for this role. In fact, because of how Mary understands the way that God works, she's able to see that the very things that should disqualify her from being part of his plan are the things that make her the kind of person that God would choose for this role. This is not a new idea. If you look through scripture, if you are the person that is put together, if you are the person that has it going on, you are not the person that God is going to choose to do something great. You got a big army, let's whittle that down as much as we possibly can. You have wealth, let's take it away. Let's find the youngest runt of the litter to be the greatest king. Mary understands how God works. And so Mary's response to her circumstances is to praise God and tell her cousin Elizabeth how good he has been to her. What I think is most radical about Mary's story is that Mary understands her story is not about her. Mary's story is all about Jesus, and that is way bigger than her. See, not only was God doing something radical and revolutionary in Mary, he was doing something radical and revolutionary in the world. Mary continues in the verse after, and and these verses are the real heart of what Mary wants to say and what Luke wants to make sure we understand about Jesus entering the world. Mary says, starting in verse 50, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent away the rich empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary recognizes that in this child, God is going to fulfill every promise he has made to his people. And maybe she doesn't know all the specific ways that that is going to play out, but she gets who the Messiah is. And she knows the promises that God has made for centuries. 
And somehow he has let her play a role in how this whole thing is going to unfold. Mary recognizes every promise gets its yes in this child. And the culmination of those promises that God has made to his people for centuries upon centuries is that there will be the establishment of a kingdom that will completely revolutionize and reverse the whole order of this world. See, in this new kingdom that God is going to inaugurate through this child, God doesn't hold his power over his subjects to keep them in line, but rather he shows mercy to those who follow and love him over and over and over for generations. Mary says in God's new kingdom, he performs mighty deeds, deeds that are greater than any other king, but those deeds are performed to thwart the proud and self-centered of this world. Mary's saying in God's new kingdom, corrupt leaders are brought down from their pedestals and they are replaced with humble, pure-hearted individuals. In God's new kingdom, those who are hungry and poor find themselves with everything that they need. And those who have made their lives about accumulating as much as they possibly can for their own benefit will find themselves completely unsatisfied and empty. Mary is describing a ridiculous kingdom, a ridiculous plan that will transform and undo the evil and brokenness of this world. And let me tell you, I'm so ready for the evil and brokenness of this world to be undone. I am so ready to see hate and violence and sickness replaced with love and peace and healing. I'm so ready to see children and parents and teachers not worried about their safety, but instead that they're worried about how they can use what they learn to creatively bless and restore their neighbors and their world. That is the kingdom that Mary is proclaiming. That's the kingdom that's going to come with her son. A kingdom in which every bit of what is wrong with this world is reversed. The brokenness of this world gets turned on its head. That's the promise that God has made to his people. That one day all that is wrong will be put to rights. And that he will do this himself. And just how much of life does that affect? Just how far does God go in in making that promise true? Well, in the life of Jesus, it goes as far as a cross. See, the kingdom of God, it's not just talk or moral teachings about being kind to our neighbors or hoping that we can do some things differently. The kingdom of Jesus really is shown to be dramatically different through the actions of Jesus himself and then later his people. You see, in Jesus' kingdom, according to the life of Jesus, the way that you gain power and life is by laying down your life for others. See, Jesus loves the humble, lowly, insignificant people like Mary, like you, like me. 
And he loves those people enough that he would give his own perfect life so that a different life would be possible for you and me. And that is not a life in which we just hope that we get to go to heaven one day in the future. It is a life that is radically transformed here and now in which we get to bring heaven here. A kingdom that will not end is established in Jesus and we are invited to be citizens of that kingdom. A life in which we get to look and live like Jesus. See, because God doesn't just want to do something radical and revolutionary in Mary, in this story, or in the world, in his great plan. God wants to do something radical and revolutionary in you and me. That is the plan of God. It's not just that a great teacher would come and tell us how to be nice to each other. It is that the God of the universe would come through a lowly, poor Middle Eastern girl 2,000 years ago and live with us and feel pain with us and suffer with us and suffer for us so that life might be possible. To initiate a conspiracy in which the powers of this world will be turned on their head and completely reversed and overcome with love and he has invited you and I as followers of Jesus to be co-conspirators with him. It's not just a teaching about how we should do things differently. It is a movement of people who have been transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the life that he invites us into. And Luke wants us to see it from the very opening of the gospel. Before Jesus is ever born, he is casting the vision for the life and the kingdom that Jesus will bring. The systems of this world will be overturned. The lowly, the humble, and the meek are the very ones who would inherit the earth. That those who mourn are those that will be comforted. That all that is broken would be restored. Now, I imagine you have a lot of really good reasons that you don't know that this is the case. <laughs> that this is really how it goes or that you are really the kind of person that can dramatically transform this really broken world. And I would 100% agree with you, right? You are most certainly not the kind of person that can radically transform the world that we live in. That is, if we're operating by the rules of this world. And so you and I need to revisit Mary. And in her words, we need to look for a model of how to live out this radical revolution of Jesus. See, in verse 38, this is going back before Mary's visit with Elizabeth. This is when Gabriel first visits Mary. Mary is struggling to wrap her head around this crazy plan and how she fits into it. And yet her final statement to God's messenger is, this is in verse 38, I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Another way of translating that original language is, I'm the Lord's servant, girl. 
May his will be done. I'm an insignificant girl. But what God says, let that will be done. And if we were to look at the words of Jesus in a garden as he looked at his own crucifixion, do you remember what he said? Jesus, not my, Lord, not my will be done, but yours. Mary is approaching this whole crazy scenario exactly the way that Jesus would approach his own death. Lord, this doesn't make sense, but your will be done. I'll do it. And so in a week in which this world seems so much more evil and broken than we could possibly figure out how to address. I think the most logical place that you and I can start is the same as Mary and the same as Jesus, which is saying, your will be done. I don't, I don't totally understand it, but, but I'll do it. If we look at Mary's song, Mary's prayer, the Magnificat as it's called, it starts with trusting the goodness and faithfulness of God and then making the bold and dangerous statement, Jesus, not my will, but your will be done. May your kingdom come here like it is in heaven. Mary is proclaiming that a radically different way of life is on the way through Jesus. And, and not just despite her circumstances, but because of her circumstances, she is blessed. The things that make up her world, the things that would make her say, I'm in no position to be a part of the reversing of this, are the very things that have given her a front row seat to watch the revolution of God. And so as you look at your life, I bet you have a million reasons that you are not the person that can transform this. That these problems are way, way, way too big and it really needs to come down to the people in power getting, getting things figured out and putting policies in place and I am not dismissing the role of government or leaders. All of that is incredibly important but what Mary has told us and what God has promised is that in his kingdom, those powerful people are the ones who are brought down off of their pedestals and humble, lowly, loving people are elevated. And so if you find yourself a humble, lowly, loving person, ask, what is my circumstance and how might God be using that very circumstance to transform this world? And it is not your job to complete the work of God. Mary's story was not about Mary. Your story is not about you. Your story is about discovering what it is that Jesus wants to do through you. So, what would it look like for you to take that posture today? To follow Mary's model, to reaffirm to yourself, God, he's good. He's faithful. He is at work even in the very darkest of places. He is reversing and redeeming the brokenness of this world.
That is who he has promised he is. That is what he has promised to do. He has made new life possible even for someone like you. And he has invited you to play a role in the restoration of all things. If all of that is true, how might his will be done in your life? What is it that lays in front of you that, that is not a circumstance that you would, would love to accept, but rather might be the very thing that God would use to enable you to have a first-hand front row seat to his revolution in this world? What is the relationship that you can leverage? The, the, the PTA seat that you have the management position that you have, the service industry position you have, the, the job that you go to, the family that you get to steward, what is it that's right there in front of you that God would say, I want you to take it and I want to do something incredible through it. I just need you to say yes. How might his will be done in your life? How might his kingdom come here on earth in your life as it is in heaven? That's an important question to ask. Because our world needs the answer desperately. I don't have the answer. I don't have the, the checkbox for you to make today. I don't know what fixes this brokenness other than I know who fixes it. And we need to be a people who have been radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we live that out, we will see the kingdom come because he is faithful and good and true to his word. And so let's be people today. Let's recommit ourselves today to be people who say, Lord, I'm your servant. Your will be done. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good. Lord, my, my soul glorifies you. We give you praise for who you are and what you have done. Lord, this world is so broken. And it seems like we just keep discovering new ways to, uh, to demonstrate that. And yet, Lord, you promised that even there, you were at work. And you would use humble, lowly, poor people like Mary to play a role in the healing of all things. And so, Lord, would you use people like us? God, whatever reasons that, that we have in front of us that would make us say, nope, not me. Lord, would you show us all of the ways that those are uniquely beautiful opportunities? for us to witness your revolution.
Jesus, you told us to pray. May your kingdom come here like it is in heaven. Lord, that's what we long for. We long for a world that looks like heaven. And so, Lord, would you show us how that might happen? Lord, we thank you for what you did in making life possible. May we experience that life. Not just a hope for someday off in the future, but life for right now that is redeemed and transformed and made new. Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you.